Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, I am with Faraz Jaka. He's a professional poker player with over $11 million in combined live and online poker earnings, a former World Poker Tour Player of the Year. He's known for his aggressive and creative playing style and was once nicknamed by CNN the homeless poker millionaire for his vagabound lifestyle, where he hops from MTT to MTT stop while enjoying the adventure and education of worldwide exploration. And just like he can make any couch work, he can make any hand work when the time is right. And that brings us to today's hand, a throwback to the North American Poker Tour where Faraz held Queen Three offsuit. Hey, Faraz, thank you so much for joining me and for giving me this um, incredible hand. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Tell me a little bit about when and where this hand took place. Yeah, so this hand was a $25,000 buy-in bounty shootout that PokerStars was hosting at the Mohegan Sun. I think there was only like two or three of these events. So it was a double shootout. I, I had already won my first table. So we were guaranteed about 80,000 or so, um, had 35 entries. So this was the final table. It was on ESPN2. Yeah, that, that was basically the event. And you say this was in um, Mohegan Sun, so Foxwoods. And yeah. so around 2010, Foxwoods, and you were already on the second table of the double bounty shootout. Yep, final table, yep. Nice. And so tell us, like, who else was at the table and what was going on when you got dealt this hand? Like I said, we'd made the final table already. The final table was Jason Mercier, uh, Sam Stein, Matt Glantz, Sean Buchanan, and Luis Vasquez. Um, Luis Vasquez was the villain in this hand, my opponent. I knew the rest of the guys. I, you know, Googled Luis Vasquez a bit, you know, looked at his hand in mob. And, you know, definitely saw that, you know, he was, you know, the amateur at the table, or at least, you know, the newer professional, uh, the less experienced player. And, you know, hand in mobbing, everyone in Google is like super standard now. But back then, that wasn't really common practice. So these days, you show up at the table and all the recreationals are joking around that, oh, I, hand, you know, I bet you hand in mob me. And back then, it's like, you didn't really talk about that, because that was like information that your opponent didn't know you had on them. You know, I definitely had Googled my opponent and, um, you know, knew that, you know, this was probably a pretty big deal for him. I believe he probably had satellited in, if I remember correctly. So before the hand, I don't remember how long we're playing, but it wasn't very long, you know, possibly 20, max 30 minutes. And his crew had just kind of entered and, you know, he gave him some hugs and, you know, they, they flew in. That had just happened before this hand started. 
And that's actually a pretty important part of this hand. I, I've never actually explained my reasoning behind this hand. I don't know if your viewers are going to see, but it was documented as, you know, one of the top hands of the decade or whatever. So the action was Matt glanced, opened, ace-nine offsuit. I three-bet queen-three offsuit on the button, which back then was a very normal play for me. Um, you know, I was very three-bet happy and applying, you know, max pressure any two hold cards I didn't really care it was really more about you know the psychological game and you know setting up the precedent that I wanted to set up at the table and the dynamic that was really the focus for me and the cards came second and, and you know back then you could you know get away with that so you know I three bet the queen three Vasquez cold calls in the small blind so it was Matt open at 3k I three bet to 8k Vasquez cold calls in the small blind uh, Matt folds or heads up to the flop so the flop is queen five jack with a flush draw. He checks. I check back. So I got, you know, top pair with not so great of a kicker. I feel like, you know, a great spot to just kind of play it as a bluff catcher. You know, he might not expect me to have a queen, you know, three betting and check back. So um, turn is the jack of spades does not complete the flush. So Vasquez leads 11K into 20.8K. And, you know, pretty, pretty standard call. River is a blank six. And now Vasquez bets 19K into 42.8K. So just under half the pot. At this point, I, I definitely read him as like somewhat scared. You know, I don't know what that means exactly. I, I actually thought there was a decent chance he had aces or kings here. Possibly something like ace queen suited. I didn't think there was a too high of a chance of him having ace, queen, ace, jack, but I thought it was a possibility. You know, maybe he had some sort of weak jack, but I, I really didn't think he had a jack. It, it felt to me like he had kings, aces, like maybe he was bluffing with ace, king. Maybe he had a better queen with ace, queen. But, you know, I, I, I felt really borderline as to like if my hand was good or not. And just like being aware that all his friends just flew in. And this is such a big moment for him. I was like, he's not going to make a big hero call here. So, you know, I, I decided to make, you know, a huge raise to 81K. So he bet 19, I made 81K. It wasn't putting them all in, but it was it was pretty close to it, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, he shakes his head and he folds and he shows ace jack, which I don't think anyone was expecting him to fold ace jack. You know, there's not a lot of hands that beat ace jack. The, actually, the, the tough decision I had, if you watch the end of the clip, is I'm like really hesitant as to like if I'm going to show my hand or not. Because for me, it was very standard. Like I, I'm probably three betting this hand because I'm going to show it. Like that, that was a big part of my game. So it was a no brainer. I'm going to show this queen three. Now, because he made, you know, such an absurd fold, I'm almost like, man, do I want to show this or do I want to let this guy just overfold all day to me um, until he figures it out? Uh, I, I end up showing the three. I just, I couldn't help myself. And uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty hilarious hand. A very shocking hand. I, I, and you did answer one of the main questions I had as to what you thought he had on the river. So your first instinct on the river when he bets is maybe I can call with the queen X, right? But then you start thinking about it for a little bit and you realize you can't call and that's when you decide to raise. Is that like how the switch flipped? I mean... I just got the vibe that he wasn't bluffing, mm -hmm. but I also got the vibe that he was a little scared and unconfident, which really makes sense for a hand like kings and aces when there's two jacks out there or even a hand like ace queen. I think my my instincts were right, but uh, the threshold of what a hand he would be scared with, that, that part I didn't get right, but it, it doesn't matter because 
it's all relative to how he feels about ace jack to him, you know? So he, he definitely undervalued the strength of ace jack. Um, and I was able to just pick up on where he valued his holdings and I was able to make a play on it. Are you able to articulate why you got that feeling or is it just all this like subconscious stuff that you kind of have to be there for? I'd say it's, it's definitely subconscious stuff. Bet size is obviously one of them. You know, he only bet, you know, half pot. But um, yeah, it, it's a lot of just trying to really understand the aura of this player, what he's feeling and um, taking that into account with whatever you know, information I have, which is the bet size, the fact that his friends is fluent, the fact that this is a big moment for him, you know, all that stuff. So really just putting everything together. So you didn't think he would four bet you with the Kings or Aces? Or you said he might, but then... I obviously thought he could three bet Aces or Kings, um, but I, I also thought he might he might just flat them. You know, obviously more likely to be something like Kings. I mean, generally most people aren't cold calling in the first place there. So the fact that he cold calls a surprise in itself so, you know, he, he could have had any of those hands, really. Of course, Matt Glantz um, is somebody you've probably been playing with over the years or, you know, you, you see him around, no doubt. So was there anything to that that, like, you wanted to show Queen 3 to Matt Glantz after three betting? I don't remember, like, specifically my dynamic with Matt back then, but I probably would have thought of him as maybe not like a nittier player, but maybe someone that was going to be easier to kind of three bet and show a bluff too. Like he's, you know, not the type that is going to be four betting like crazy or playing back super crazy. I don't even know these days how his games adapted, but you know, that, that really wasn't my perception of him. So um, yeah, you know, my, my game, you know, at that time was, you know, try to dominate the table, you know, show people that, you know, you're going to be putting them in high, tough, you know, high bearing spots and, you know, and show that early, you know, and, and let that psycho psychological dominance kind of like sink in over the table. So yeah, explain that to me because, okay, isn't it good in a way if people think that you're sure you're running over the table, but like there's some doubt in their mind, they might just think you have it every time. And then when you show them that you actually had queen three, why is that a good thing? If it like reveals to them that, you know, you're probably full of shit a lot of the time. I don't care what image I have. What's important is just that I'm aware of what my image is. And uh, I feel like my awareness is, is very high. And uh, I'm also, you know, very good at, you know, understanding how other people are going to, you know, react to certain things. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of, you know, recreationals or friends of mine who aren't professionals will say, oh, you know, you play online poker. Like there's not much like reading people in online poker, right? And, you know, I say, no, there absolutely is. And I think a big part of reading people is understanding, um, you know, when someone's playing recklessly aggressive, you know, how does person A respond to that? You know, when 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 person A is winning, when person A is losing, when person A gets bad beat, you know, what is their reaction and how do they how how, the, how is that guy going to respond to me showing him a bluff or making a comment at him? That's a big part of my game, and especially back then when people weren't playing so fundamentally sound. So you know, now it, it is easier to be like, okay, this guy's you know, taking this weird line where he's not supposed to have a raising range, he's not going to have enough value hands here. So I can just do this, like this GTO play as a defense. You know, back then, people really didn't have those solutions. Being able to play like that was a lot, um, I don't want to say easier, but it was much more of an option. And it, it still is, you know, at times today, you know, not every single spot is perfectly solved and people aren't playing with solvers. But um, you know, it, it, it was easier back then. And it's something, you know, I, I still have in my arsenal today, but, you know, maybe not as trigger happy as, you know, back then. 
So the flap was queen five jack with um, two diamonds, and then there was an offsuit jack, offsuit six. And on the river, when he bet and you raise, I remember watching the clip, which by the way, is available on YouTube and the Poker Stars channel. I'm also going to intersplice some of it on YouTube, but most people listen on podcast channels, but it'll be linked in the show notes. So queen five jack, jack six, no flush gets there. Um, the first thing he says is it like feels like he's seeing a ghost because he's like, you checked back the flop so quickly. Feels like, you know, it doesn't occur to him that you could have a queen X that you would just check back immediately. Although actually, if he knew you were three betting with queen three, that would make perfect sense, right? Exactly. I didn't think he expected me to check a queen back. And I can't sit there and tell you how I thought about um, his range, my range, like exactly like being it's so long ago, but I, I do specifically remember him, like me thinking like he's not going to put me on a queen here, which would make the raise really surprising because then it's like, well, what what am I raising with? And, and you know, it's like turning your hand into a bluff, like, you know, that that was, you know, not as common either back then. And, you know, especially someone like him who, you know, maybe isn't as used to some, you know, it's a $25,000 buy-in. Like this guy's not used to playing, you know, against players that are, you know, taking those lines as much. Is it difficult for you at all? Because I mean, it seems like you're thinking of it purely strategically. Is it ever difficult for you to show a bluff there because you know that it's going to make your opponent and his fans and friends and family sad or, you know, upset or whatever. Oh, I, I, I don't care about that at all. I mean, I'm a, for me, for me, that's part of the competitive nature. You know what I mean? To me, that's all in good fun nature. So I love to poke fun at my opponents to show them games to smack talk. But you know, I, I, I'm big on, you know, you need to do it with class and you need to know where to draw the line. I'm the guy at the poker table where, you know, if I'm opening my mouth, people will be really annoyed and probably hate me at the table. But you know, when, when the game's over and they see me in the hallway, they'll still shake my hand and we can be friendly. And, and that's usually, and they'll even be like, man, like I hated you at my table. It's important to, you know, keep it classy and, and understand the difference be- between, you know, what's, what's out of line and what's not. And I can certainly confirm from like, you know, everybody, you, ha- you have a really great reputation as being like fun to play with, even though you are very aggressive and it's, it's uh, difficult. And you see like in the, in the clip, you know, it's like you're showing the hand, but you're not like making fun of him as you're showing it. So I was very hesitantly showing the hand there, but that's because of how absurd the fold was. So normally I would be snap showing my hands on a lot of those spots. Like no question. There's nothing to even think about. And, and you know, you're saying is, you know, wouldn't you want to be hesitant to do that? But that, that was part of my game, you know, showing bluffs, doing absurd things, and people not knowing how to respond to that. So they'd respond in poor ways. You know, they'd try to play back at me. You know, they'd try to play my game, which they're not, you know, comfortable and familiar with. So yeah, that, and, and, and sometimes, sometimes against certain players, I don't feel like that's the best strategy. So I, I'm not necessarily going to show them. Or sometimes it's not even about that guy. Sometimes it's about the other people at the table and what, you know, their perception is. You know, it, I'm really just taking in the whole kind of picture. And trying to have some fun, it sounds like, too. So let let me ask you this. If you had queens there, like, I know you have queen three. So probably the chances of you actually having queens there are like, like in the single digits, right? Because if you have queen three, then you have, you have a lot of other hands, too. I could play queens like that, but I wouldn't have played it like that against him. You know, I, I, I just don't think that there's a lot of hands he would have folded to a bet based on what I ranged him on. So I, I wouldn't have played queens against him there, but I might play queens like that against someone else. And if you had queens, would you also show queens? Or like strategically, do you think it's like just not good to blow people up and make them feel confident? It depends on the player. If I thought 
he was going to overfold to me in the future, then I would show Queens. You know, some people I think are smart enough to realize that if you show Queens, it's like you're trying to set up a good image because you're going to be aggressive later. Like, ha ha, that's very obvious. If I think the guy's smart enough to pick up on that, I might, I might show because I'm playing level two, you know? So I'm always just kind of thinking about, you know, what, what does this lead to? Like, how do they perceive this and how are they going to perceive? Like, why am I showing this? Like, they're going to think that, right? Some people don't think that. So it's all about, you know, my read on that player. Did you have any superstitious attachment to queen three or having a tray in your hand or was it just purely situational? Not at all. I mean, so sometimes I've been at tables where I show bluff with jack four and, you know, the table's laughing about it. And, and I'm like, if I get jack, jack four again, I'm, I'm going to three bet. And, um, you know, then someone else at the table three bets and shows jack four. And so, sometimes that will happen. But at, at that moment, like, no, there is no specific reason to queen three. It was purely just what I felt like doing at the moment and the dominance or, you know, the, the the table flow that I wanted to have. Well, that's good because I think Jack Four was taken by Nick Schulman. So <laughs> I, I can't remember. It might have been Jack Three. But yeah, I'm really glad this hand was a clean tray. You have always seemed to play a lot of hands, right? And you enjoy playing a lot of hands and opening up your pre-flop ranges, three-betting widely. Is that something that came supernaturally to you or was it like a kind of like a development over the years as you realize, you know, I can do this? Oh, well, I can also do this. And like it kept expanding. It, for me, it was super, it, that was just purely my natural instinctive way to play poker. When I first started playing, I started playing on this site called Royal Vegas Poker. It was on the Prima Network while I was in college. You know, I was a kid jumping into these 2550, 5000 no limit cash games with min buying or half my banker on the table and started battling people. And, you know, I was playing some of the top players in the world at the time that I didn't know anything about who they are. I just started playing like six months ago. So I was playing guys like Rambo Swanee, Frolod Friedman, and I was playing shorthanded, right? So you're just, you're battling, you know, you're just... You're battling and my style was I, I was playing crazy I was playing absurd I'd bluff you know back to back to back hand and show every time and try to level people and uh, that that was just my style of play and you know I just felt like it, it would tilt people it would get people off their game they wouldn't know how to respond to that and and that style of play really wasn't too prevalent back then you know like I'd, I would come across like one or two other guys playing like that and then I, I think like you know maybe three four five years later that started becoming you know, a really popular style of play. And then, you know, a lot of Scandinavian players were known for like four and five betting and that whole kind of period happened. And, you know, since then people, you know, have, have toned back, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. Queen three in this hand, after it happened, what was its reaction like in the next subsequent hands? Because sometimes when I feel like when something happens like that, people really like shut down and become like really like, a little bit embarrassed. Um, did that happen to him in this case? Probably a little bit. I mean, he, he, I mean, he had his, you know, hand like this and, you know, he'd make some comments at me and, you know, you could tell he was, he was thinking, he was thinking the situation in his head, like why he did what is, what he did and, you know, trying to decide if he wants to justify it or not. But no, I mean, he, he took it really well. Like he wasn't, he wasn't like pissed at me or he, he didn't feel like I did anything rude to him, but he was just like kind of questioning himself, you know? It's a difficult thing in poker to make a really bad fold, isn't it? It's probably one of the worst feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, like I said, this was like a unique moment for him. So I'm sure he was probably just a little bit in a daze. I, I think I remember, you know, after a lot of people commenting, I don't know where, if it was like on YouTube or 
two plus two or Twitter. I, I can't remember where, but I remember people commenting, like asking like, oh, were you bluffing? Or were you like value betting? And I, I think maybe even one of his friends was kind of saying that. So, you know, that was the kind of discussion that was kind of happening with some of the people that weren't kind of used to that type of play. That was kind of a weird, you know, normally you don't turn top pair into a bluff, but there are some rare, rare spots where, you know, that that might happen. But that definitely was not common. Not, I mean, not that that's super common today either. It was a really great hand history because you have um, all these like interesting moments on every street of the hand. And it also takes us back to a time where, you know, a style like that could be so successful. How'd you end up doing in the event? I got third. Uh, it was uh, it was a shootout. So only first place was going to take uh, home more money. Everyone was guaranteed 80000 at that final six. And then the winner was going to get, I don't know, something like 475000 to the winner. And the rest of us got 80000 So it strikes me that you have this really aggressive style on the felt. But then in your life, it seems like you've cultivated so much discipline in terms of like your your travel system and your um, your diet and exercise. Are those two things like related in a way? Yeah, it's in, I, I think that's kind of what keeps me balanced in a way. Uh, I remember back in the day, people would meet me and they'd be like, whoa, like I expect like playing online with you, I expected you to just be like all over the place. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I think, you know, I think part of it is that's kind of my creative outlet. I, I guess I'm not sure exactly kind of where the structure kind of came from. So I don't have a great answer to that. But part of my philosophy for poker is I, I think it comes from definitely an athletic background. Um, so, you know, I played basketball and track pretty seriously in high school. And, you know, I was definitely more successful in track. But, you know, basketball was probably the sport I was more passionate about. I remember at PCA when we'd go play basketball, some of the poker players would be like, damn, like you play basketball like you play poker. And, you know, what they mean by that is I'm the guy diving for the loose balls. You know, when you take out the ball and the baseline on the other side, usually everybody just runs back and waits for it. Like, I'm, I'm up on you, like trying to make you make a mistake in a situation where most people don't guard you. I'm yelling things at you. I'm doing whatever I can to get an edge on you, you know, get in your face, get in your head and just be like a pain in the ass. And, and that's kind of similar to kind of how I came into poker. There's something to be said for people that really want to win and really try hard. And, it, it, you know, it's about focusing on every single detail, thinking about as much, you know, all the different aspects you can and, you know, what, what you can apply, what can you do that other people aren't doing. Being organized with your schedule and optimizing things and not spending as much money as some people, booking your flights ahead of time, like that actually kind of gives you an edge in a way, whereas, you know, part, part of the game of, you know, live MTT poker is, is staying in the game, being able to kind of survive, not get drained, not have the finances kill you on your downswing. And, um, you know, someone who's been around for 10 years is going to be more experienced than someone who last three years leaves and now, you know, some other pro takes his spot. Even, even if that new pro has you know, a higher skill level than you, you know, they may not have that, you know, same experience as you. And, um, you know, all those things add up. I heard an interview with you on Card Player where you talked about how, you know, you learn a very fast financial lessons in poker that might take you many years to learn in the business world. And it strikes me when I see somebody so disciplined with um, finance and travel and their lifestyle, and then so aggressive on the poker table that it's like, 
it makes sense because the more disciplined you are, the more risk you can afford to take. Like that mm -hmm. also makes sense in real life that if you're not spending and going crazy, like you can just kind of be more risky, yeah. risky with your investments. I'm super splurgy with certain things once in a while with spending, but I'm very calculated about it. So, you know, I just feel like if you splurge everywhere, it just, it doesn't work. But if you really enjoy something like, so, you know, I'm really, I'm really thoughtful about, you know, what do I really enjoy? Well, the nittier I am with these other things that don't make a big difference to me, then the more I could spend on that thing that I really enjoy. So I'm also just kind of very calculated and thoughtful about it in that way. What do you like to splurge on? Restaurants, you know, fine dining. You know, I, I love going out and having nice conversation and, you know, having that experience, um, you know, with other people, especially on the road, traveling so many different places. So, you know, that that's one thing. There's other things that maybe might not make as big of a difference to me. So, um, yeah, it also just kind of depends, you know, where I am in my life financially, you know, my goals, um, what kind of binds I have coming up, you know, if I'm down swinging, up swinging. So, you know, all, all sorts of things. So when you were coined the, the Homeless Poker Millionaire by CNN, they talked about how you traveled all over the world, all these different stops, which is two carry-ons. So tell me about that, because I don't really pack light, but sometimes I really want to. But then I always find myself like throwing things away at the destination because like I somehow accumulate things and I literally can't fit them back. Did that happen to you a lot? And how did you deal with that? And did you ever have to throw away something that you didn't want to? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I have pictures of me like sad face, like abandoning like a jacket at the airport because I didn't have space. Yeah, no, when I first started traveling, I had the big, the whole big suitcase with all my stuff in there. So I started out right out of call. I was already traveling, you know, for poker while I was in college, you know, going to EPT Barcelona and, you know, some light stuff. As soon as I graduated, you know, full time hit the road. You know, I was on the road for about a year and a half, you know, mostly in Europe doing a lot of EPTs, got drained, moved to Chicago for a year and a half, got sick of being normal and went back on the road. This time going back on the road, you know, I did things differently. And I, I've actually since that time, I've lasted indefinitely. I've been on the road since then, so which has been about 10, 12 years. So, you know, what was the difference from that first year and a half to, you know, those, those 10 years? Definitely luggage is a key, key, key part of that. Because, you know, I would just think about, you know, what, what, what were the things that, you know, drained me? And luggage, you know, when you're trying to be really flexible about spending, about where you stay, Sometimes I would stay in and out of hostels or, you know, I'd meet people on poker tour and they'd be like, oh, like I live in Switzerland, like you could sleep on my couch or I have a guest bedroom, um, hop over here or jump on trains. And if you have a lot of luggage, like that type of traveling, it's just really hard. It drains you and it just literally makes you tired and that that will take you off the road. You know, you know, when you can't work out on the road, that obviously is draining. So, you know, I came up with a system. Where I was like, okay, there's, you know, a concept called decision fatigue, where every time you have to figure out something, you know, it's draining. So going to, okay, I'm in London. Well, how am I going to work out? Okay, I'm in Berlin. How am I going to work out? Well, you don't know what you're going to get everywhere. So instead, I came up with a system like, all right, these are workouts I could do on the floor. You know, I, I actually had um, an extension core, like a big thick one that I would use for, you know, playing online in weird spots like lobbies. But that actually doubles as a jump rope. And something I could tie around my knees to also do exercises with. I just came up with an exercise routine that I could do no matter where I was. I did the same thing with food. I was like, what's something that, what are like meals I can make no matter where I am? It's going to be really easy to get these ingredients, you know, like, oh, canned tuna with like honey mustard and, you know, whatever, like, okay, that's my one meal. And I just come up with meals that are like cheap and easy and consistent to do no matter where I am. 
So now I don't have to think about those things. No matter where I am, I'm going to be able to eat healthy. I'm going to be able to exercise. And I don't have all these, this huge luggage, you know, draining me. I'm in an Excel of, you know, all the basic items that were in my luggage. And it started tracking like how much I was using them. And I, I used the same like couple things over and over and over again. There was, you know, their other 80% was there just in case. And, you know, that just in case, like it was just better to get rid of all the just in case. And sure, if that comes up, you buy it or whatever, you figure it out. So, um, yeah, and even like trying to trying to travel for like different climates, like rather than having a big jacket, I just found a good way to layer like smaller jackets that could, you know, get the same thing done if I'm if I'm in the cold. Just being really thoughtful about that, you know, my, my pants, I um, rather than having like three or four pants or like three, four shoes, I just buy like two expensive pants that are like, you know, really comfortable, look nice. You know, I could sit for 12 hours and play poker. I could wear them on a plane. Um, same thing with the shoes, you know, I could hike in them. I could play sports, but they, I could also dress them up. So just being really thoughtful about being uh, versatile. Yeah, I think that's really smart and important and something to think about also with all like the the waste that the fashion industry creates. If you can, you know, make sure you're buying quality because like long term, you might actually spend less money and definitely spend less resources. When you talk about decision fatigue, it kind of strikes me that by removing all these decisions about like food and travel and clothing, you also are making decisions that a lot of poker players aren't making. Well, especially back in those days when you were able to make any style work, even one that was like V-pipping, I don't know, it sounds like 50% plus. You have decisions that a lot of poker players wouldn't need to make, like For sure. play queen three off here or not. Yeah. Like most people, that's not a decision. <laughs> that would be hard sometimes because I'd put myself in so many difficult situations and then you have these swings and that gets stressful and draining in itself. And that was definitely, you know, kind of something I battled with back then as well. What was the hardest thing to let go of traveling with or the hardest like convenience of staying at like luxury hotels on the tour? I, I don't have an answer to that. And it's because it, it, it's not like it was a block. It's not like one day I just woke up and I was like, I'm giving this up. You know, it was just more of a slow optim optimization. You know, I, I guess the only time I had kind of a more extreme kind of experience was, you know, I did a 10 day meditation retreat, Vipassana retreat in Thailand. You know, we literally slept on wooden bunk beds. We had nothing. And we lived like that for 10 days. And at the end of it, you know, you were the happiest you've ever been. And you have nothing, you know, the bare, bare minimum. I was also like, how am I going to sleep on this wooden bunk bed for 10 days? You know, just seeing that having nothing but spending 10 days strengthening your mind and awareness that you could become this happy. It was like, all right, I, I definitely don't need those things to be happy. Like, sure, they're nice. And they're, they're cherries on top. But like, this is definitely the number one most important thing that controls my happiness, like not those other things. So just being aware of that. And, and obviously, like, like anything, like it's easy to get spoiled and go back into your own habits. And, you know, I, I need my reminders about that as well. But, you know, going and doing a spiritual kind of retreat like that, I think is, is really powerful to kind of hack yourself into that discipline and that awareness. 10 days without speaking. Did you think about poker at all during that time? Yeah, definitely. Because at that time, I was kind of at a crossroads between, you know, did I really want to continue playing poker? I was also, you know, very passionate about business and entrepreneurship. And I was constantly like trying to do little projects or invest in startups. And I felt like I was kind of doing both things kind of crappy because I was trying to do both. I wasn't really expecting this because I was trending towards like, you know, doing something, you know, more business wise. And at the retreat, I just realized, you know what, I'm, I'm not I'm not done with poker. 
you know, I, I haven't accomplished what I want to accomplish out of it. And I still have a lot more to give to it. And, and it was great because it just kind of helped me kind of hone in on that and, and you know, not, to not, you know, end up trying to do two things crappy and spreading myself too thin. I've heard you talk also about how now you're doing content and obviously playing poker and how it can be a challenge to balance those. Um, mm -hmm. But you also have a lot of coaching work. So you do work with pokercoaching.com, which is Jonathan Little's site, and then you have a lot of private students. When it comes to your private students, what's something that like comes naturally to you as a poker player that you find really challenging to instill in your students? A lot of people kind of want help with kind of game flow and dynamic and you know, trying to figure out how to like take advantage of your uh, opponents in that way. And that is sometimes hard to teach in kind of one-on-one -on -one sessions because the way a lot of my one-on-one -on -one sessions work is, you know, I have people, you know, send me hand histories or view them on Poker Tracker or, you know, I'll show them my hand histories. And, you know, when you're looking at filtered hand histories, you don't necessarily get the dynamic. So that's a problem that I was trying to solve because that, that's actually really hard to teach people. So that's why I've actually even started doing uh, like group coaching where, you know, it's a combination of, you know, people just watching me, you know, go through an entire session, a certain topic, or just like a live stream that's fully focused on, um, you know, watching me play and me talking out loud the entire time. And those are the examples where people get to actually see, you know, the dynamic and like, oh, I made this crazy three bet, which wouldn't make sense in a vacuum. But if you see what's been going on the last 20 hands, you know, it makes sense. So yeah, so that's something I've actually been trying to kind of incorporate by kind of adjusting kind of the different ways of coaching to help people kind of understand that game flow part. I think it's really smart from a business perspective that you do these like private Twitch streams, I noticed. So they're like subscriber only, probably something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's smart because it's like the exclusivity is rare now. Most people are just doing them to gain exposure. And, you know, I started doing some Twitch and, um, you know, and, and I, I'll do that once in a while. That's more kind of just like fun to like engage with my fans. But I do find myself a little bit hesitant to just talk completely openly about my strategy when I'm on Twitch. Whereas, you know, when I'm doing my private streams, I don't I don't hold anything back and I just feel more comfortable kind of, you know, giving it, you know, giving it all to, you know, users that, you know, have trusted to kind of pay me for coaching. Do you think that you get a lot of students who feel like they're too tight and want you to loosen them up? Is that like a typical student profile that you get? I'd say that's, that's definitely a student profile that I get. I wouldn't say that majority of my students are that way, but yeah, I'd say, you know, some maybe 25% or so are that way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you get a lot of people that are just flatting too much and, you know, scared to kind of inflate the pots and, you know, scared to take on variants. One of my friends, uh, Kevin Andrea Mahifa, we have, he's a friend I talk strategy with. We have this joke where every time I talk about like a student or someone not wanting to take a high variance play, he's like, it's actually high variance to like not take that play, you know, just thinking about long-term ROI. The biggest risk is to take no risk at all, right? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I actually wanted to ask you about your own poker education because you're so busy between your entrepreneurship and your coaching business and your actual play. And now with like all these intensive study systems with like solvers, what do you prioritize with like your own poker education? I just try to think about, you know, what, what are the, you know, the, the scenarios that, you know, you're going to be in most often and, you know, making sure that, you know, you prioritize that. And also kind of just thinking about things that other people aren't doing, things that other people aren't onto. And probably the last part would be just always being mindful of what are the trends and, you know, what, what are kind of the new things 
that people are doing and what what is the exploit you know on that so you know just always trying to stay you know one step ahead of the game because you know there's a lot of monkey see monkey do kind of strategy out there where people just copy what the top players are doing but they don't fully understand you know why so just trying to think of like okay what are you know now that people are doing this play like wh- what are the ways you can kind of annoy people that they're not going to be prepared for so yeah just kind of thinking about you know those spots um you know i really think it's important to have a study group peers that you talk to that's one of the most important things like for for anyone like you know throughout my career you know having people to whatsapp hands and talk through like that's absolutely essential Do you think you're fearless and is there anything in poker you're afraid of? <laughs> I I I honestly don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, I mean in terms of thinking about money at the table like I I truly can say I I feel pretty fearless and that you know luckily I I'm able to just completely disassociate the money and I feel like I'm able to get into a zone where even if I'm playing like an extremely high stakes tournaments that you know very big for myself I'm able to make the play I need to make, you know, make the bluff I need to make and I could walk away and later, you know, when it didn't work just be like, god damn, like that was like a huge equity play that didn't work out and if I didn't do that it could have been in this scenario, but luckily like while I'm in the zone like that just doesn't cross my mind and actually after I I feel very satisfied that, you know, I'm able to kind of pull the trigger like that. So you you can't think of anything that you're afraid of in poker? What would be like an example? Like what's something you're afraid of? I think an example of a fear in poker would be like being on a big TV table and like being kind of caught between your head and your heart and choosing the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Like that that right there like you kind of know like your brain tells you this is a definite fold yeah. and your heart tells you this is a call and you go with the wrong one and like yeah like that's a fear. Yeah. I would say that would be a fear I have. I don't really have anything that is gives me any anxiety in poker kind of going into it. but i i for sure like as i'm playing i'm aware that oh i'm making mistakes here and making mistakes there and you know after i think about it and try to think about why i did that and how i could kind of improve it but yeah i don't really have any kind of fears kind of going into the scenario you know it's funny about the money because i think there's actually a lot of people who are able to disassociate with the money in poker tournaments not saying that it's obviously a great skill to have But I think there's a decent proportion of people who can do it because like that's why we give people poker chips, right? Or casinos invented poker chips. And then the tournament kind of adds like an additional layer because you you have your stop loss. Yeah. But people are still afraid of getting knocked out of the tournament because it's sometimes it just feels so exciting, almost like a party. Like they don't want to be eliminated, right? That's why there's this concept of the bubble. Even if you're like the richest person in the event, you don't want to be walking away. And so I think that the ability you have to just kind of like not care is is pretty important and it's like a psychological thing that's not that easy to teach. And and actually the toughest part there is a lot of the people that are the best at being able to disassociate the money, they find it really tough to disassociate in their personal life and that's where kind of the spewy stuff happens with the spending, the bankroll management and um that's definitely something that's tough and you know Luckily I had my bad experience, you know, early on at, you know, 1920 and and was able to kind of hone that part. You know, there there's a lot of A+ players with C- bankroll management and they're broke or they're not around and there's players with C+ skill but A+ bankroll management and and they can make a living out of poker. Yeah, and that certainly mirrors I'm sure the business world in a lot of ways. So congratulations, you're going to be a, a father soon. Yep, I am. 
And what's your, your plan in terms of your whole like vagabond philosophy and your travel and your adventure? That's a popular topic of conversation right now. Um, you know, my, my wife's a vagabonder as well. In a little different way, she lived in Bali. She's Brazilian. She lived in Bali. She lived in you know London. She lived in Buenos Aires. Her travel was more like one year, a couple years at a time, whereas mine was kind of more like every ten days a new country. But we both kind of have that vagabond spirit, and we want to stay on the road. I mean, we we love the road. So, you know, I always kind of assumed kind of getting married might lead to kind of being in one place. So, you know, we bought a place in Boulder and we kind of lived there for a little bit. And um, now we're just kind of renting out our place and back on the road. And we're just like, you know, hey, like we want to be on the road. Like this, this feels more natural to us. So we've been doing that about two years. And now kind of the same thing's happening with the baby where we're like, okay, when the baby comes, like I think we might need to stay put. But, you know, like last time that didn't really happen. So let's not force it. We're kind of three months before baby's born, three months after we're going to like stay put, which is like a long period for us, six months. We've never done six months in one place. And, you know, we're just going to kind of get our ducks in a row. And, you know, after the baby's three months old, we're going to hit the road. It's probably going to be around time for WSCP in Vegas. So whether that's online or live, you know, I'm going to be there. And that's going to be kind of our first trip. That That's a bit of an easier trip for us because we'll be in California and it's just seven, eight hour drive. And that's going to be kind of a nice reality check for us kind of see how it is. After that, we're probably going to spend four or five months in Brazil, kind of, you know, stay with her family. So kind of first year is kind of just like three or four long trips. That will kind of be the reality check into like year two is like, okay, can we act like how hard is this? How realistic is this? Or do we need to settle down? We'll see, you know, we we just started a vlog. And, you know, we're gonna try to start vlogging the kind of dynamic of us traveling with the baby on the road and all that stuff. I'll be kind of sharing the journey on my YouTube channel. Oh, I think it's fantastic. I have an almost four year old. And I think that you guys being that you have so much travel experience, you'll do wonderfully. One of the things that I heard before I became a parent that I now think is just absolutely ridiculous, even though I would have said it before, so I don't hate anyone on saying it. People used to say it's about like traveling with kids, like what's the point of traveling if they don't remember it? That's garbage. Once you have a kid, it could be the most important because it's like they're kind of like, you know, developing like their personality and their creativity. Why does a memory have to be permanent in order for it to be important? Got it. And a lot of parents have reported to me also that if a child travels a lot, a lot of times they learn something right thereafter. Like for instance, my son learned to walk at about 13 months, which is about average. But right before he learned to walk, we went to the PCA and he was like crawling and it's like kind of frustrating for like a one-year-old because yeah he's there and there's like all these amazing things and you know pca it's like everything was so spread out at the atlantis there's the beach there's all these pools you kind of like want to walk and like literally like a week after we got home he started to walk that's cool well that's that's thanks for sharing that because that's definitely motivating to hear because yeah we've definitely heard that too and then we've also heard oh you know what about you know, different sights and smells and sounds and personalities like also could kind of influence, you know, a baby even if they're not going to keep the memory. Yeah, it's great. I'm excited for you. That's awesome. And I, I will check out your YouTube channel. Now you have Baraz Jaka YouTube channel for your poker. Is that also going to be where your lifestyle and parenting vlog is? Yeah. So Baraz Jaka on YouTube 
And then doing a lot of social stuff, just, you know, on Twitter, Instagram, it's at Faraz Jaka. And for my coaching stuff, uh, people can just directly email me at coaching at farazjaka.com. So those are kind of the different ways people can get in touch with me or follow me. And yeah, the YouTube vlog, uh, we did our first one um, in Cabo. We just did two months there to play all the big online stuff. And that was a really, really fun vlog. So I uh, definitely recommend, um, you know, going on YouTube and just typing in Faraz Jaka Cabo and it'll come up. Yeah, well, I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much, Faraz. This was awesome. You know, I really appreciate you helping me um, click off a hand that really would be very difficult to get otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on the rest for whatever you, you know, the deuce three off, just, just let me know, I'll take care of it. Yes, thank you, thank you, yes. And, and not only did you click off queen three, but you clicked it off with a hand that actually had pre-flop, three bet, or river raise, just like... The hardest decision in the hand was whether or not to show at the end. That is amazing. I do love your explanation of why you show, how you remove the emotion from it, because you're obviously a really empathetic person, but that just doesn't play into your poker strategy. And I think that it's really interesting to me because I basically never show bluffs. And my philosophy for it is that it's always better for people to fold to you when you're playing a poker tournament. That's always been my philosophy. Got it. That like if people think that I have it, then that's good because then they'll continue to fall. I think it just depends on kind of the, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of your own game. And, you know, for me, like a lot of people who have sat at the tables with me for a long time, they've seen people punt to me and there's some epic punts people have made. And, you know, it's a combination of, of, of all those different things. But just because that's right for me, it doesn't necessarily mean it is right for you. You know, for your game, it could be that showing is worse off. You know, I, I can't, can't really answer that, but that's kind of a question for everyone to think about on their own for themselves. The point I was trying to make is that I totally understand what you're saying about it being disconcerting. And I think that in the end, sometimes people justify strategies because they want to do things rather than just kind of trying to figure out what's most correct. Yeah. And that could be an example of it. Like you don't want to make anyone feel bad. So you just don't show. Whereas like, I would never have that same philosophy about another aspect of poker. I'm never going to be like, oh, I'm not going to raise here because I don't want to make them feel bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for, for me, the decision to show is still part, like the way you think about raising in the hand, I think about after the hand, like for me, that's still part of the game. Yes, exactly. And I think that is the difference. And that's what I think is so instructive about this. That is tr exactly true for us. I think when the hand is over, it's like after the river, right? After the betting action. And for you, it continues that little bit of time. For me, the games in the hallway, when I see who my opponents are talking to in the hallway, like that's information, who they see me. I'm aware of who they see I'm talking to, what they know about me and like all that's all part of the game for me. That's how you sell in today's game. You have to take every edge and be constantly thinking and on your feet. So Faraz Jaka, you can find him on all of the aforementioned places. Faraz Jaka on Twitter and Instagram. Faraz Jaka Poker on Twitch and pokercoaching.com slash Faraz. And he helped us out enormously on our grid project by taking Queen 3 offsuit. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent